welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're listening to an interview we did with Sarah Schwan-Yen Bynum about her new book of short stories called Likes. I thought this would be a good episode for the holiday weekend as we stare down Thanksgiving, however we might either celebrate it or remember it or think about it. A lot of it does mean spending time with family and Sarah's book is very much about family and very much about childhood and growing up and children and raising children. And so we thought this would be an appropriate pairing. Yes, definitely. And um, it's imaginative, which sometimes I think family can feel kind of like tedious and mundane. So this book, put some of the whimsy back in um, being a member of the, of a family, which is nice. That's so true. What a good thing to remember, Kate. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I speak from experience, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyhow, um, let's listen to the interview. Let's do it. Today we're joined by Sarah Xuanyan Bynum. She's the author of two novels, Miss Hempel Chronicles, a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award, and Madeline is Sleeping, a finalist for the National Book Award and winner of the Janet Heidinger Kafka Prize. Her latest book is a collection of short stories, and it's called Likes. Her fiction has appeared in many magazines and anthologies, including The New Yorker, Plowshares, Tin House, and The Best American Short Stories. And she is an Angelino, so we're so, so proud to have her on the show. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. In this collection, there's a story where a father is thinking about being 12 years old, the age of his daughter, and he can't really remember in a kind of sense memory way what it felt like to be that age. And just from reading your work, I have a feeling that you have very strong sense memory of what it felt like to be younger and a young girl. And um, I guess I'm wondering if you can talk about some of what those feelings are and why they seem to be so salient in your work. That's a wonderful question. And I do still feel very connected to my 12-year-old self in some ways. And in fact, one of the distressing aspects of growing older is the difficulty of being able to recall some of those sense memories that I just always assumed would be there, would just sort of always be at the ready. And Now, as I'm getting older, and also as my daughter is sort of hitting all of these age milestones, 12, 14, 15, I'm finding it more difficult to access them. So I think part of the reason that I feel compelled to write about that age is out of this need to capture it before it's gone. Because especially given that my decade of childhood has now been recreated in sort of airsats form through popular media. You know, I never sort of thought that would happen, that like the 80s would become something that would be fetishized to the degree that it has been. But it's very disconcerting to sort of see the set of mixing bowls that you remember so well now used as like a prop on Stranger Things. So 
for me, part of the writing is very much about trying to preserve what I do remember, especially what I remember in terms of sense perceptions and that sort of minor detail that ends up populating your memories before it becomes overwritten by a recreated version of that time in my life. So for me, a lot of it comes back to music. So music is very much like the portal for me to re-enter that age in my life. I can still chart very carefully what I was experiencing at different ages based on what I was listening to. And then it also becomes like a very lovely timeline because I can be like, oh, wait, that record didn't come out until 1986. No, 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 that must. So for me, really music and the music I was discovering at the time, that's become the way that I both organize and access those memories. That's so interesting. Can you give us some examples? Like what is some of the music that you use to sort of access these different parts of your memory? So in one of the stories in the collection, there's a lot about the Smiths because the Smiths were such a turning point band for me and such a discovery and opened up this whole world of possibilities in terms of independent music and seeking out what was not readily available via the mainstream, like listening to Hatful of Hollow was something I did over and over again as I was writing that story. And it was so funny because even as I was listening to the Smiths, I was then also remembering, you know, what my friends were listening to at the time. Like, oh, my best friend loved Toto. (laughs) And now I would just... (laughs) cringe when she would put on Toto. and But just listening to that collage of music was something that really helped me return to 1985. And then I actually went and re-watched some of the MTV countdowns. It's, you know, just amazing how everything now is like archived and available online. So you can pull up a specific date and see what like the top 10 videos were of that week. So it does become this sort of eerily accurate way to revisit very specific moments from one's past. I think that in the story that you're referring to, music is kind of the Smiths in particular, is the thing a character finds that kind of gives her independence from her friends. And it charts a separate path that she goes on. And it's kind of like a private place that she can go. Throughout these stories, I think there's a lot of examples of younger people going to a place that's inaccessible, you know, either by their parent or by their friends. It's kind of like even what they're thinking or feeling might not be so obvious to the people around them. Can you talk about that aspect of youth, of that kind of private, impenetrable place that where sometimes we find ourselves? And then I think also in the stories, it's like sometimes we get lost. Yeah, you put that so well. And I do think privacy is so important to protect. And I don't mean in the sense of, of course, the question of privacy has taken on a whole new meaning in a digital age. But I really mean it in its sense of protecting your own interior world and then protecting your own inner life. And 
I remember my daughter asking me at some point, are you ever tempted to read my diaries? She's a really committed diary keeper and she's been keeping them for years, which was a skill I was never able to cultivate myself. So I've always marveled at her discipline about writing in a diary. And she's asked me over the years, do you ever have that urge to sneak into my room and see what I'm writing or, you know, see what I've confessed to the pages of my diary? And I told her, and I meant it in all honesty, I never have that urge. I never feel that temptation because I remember so vividly how important it was to me to have a world that was entirely my own. And then, of course, as you pointed out, sometimes the danger of having this private world is that it can become its own sort of vortex um, and that the people around you and the people who love you aren't aware of what's occurring inside there. But I do feel that despite those risks, it's just essential to figuring out who we want to be to have a space that we've created where we can have those conversations with ourselves, with the artists that we love, with the music that moves us, with our fantasies about what the future will look like, that those private conversations are essential. Is that something that you think gets diminished as one grows older? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, I do find that as one gets older, you, out of necessity, sort of spend more time. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm saying this because I'm a writer, so I already spend a lot of alone time. But I do think that those conversations maybe become more habitual, become more second nature somehow as you become an adult, that there doesn't necessarily have to be the same kind of deliberate carving out of a space in which those conversations, those private conversations can happen. And I am struck by how much more time alone one spends as an adult. And I think I've been struck by this because now seeing the effects of quarantine and isolation and my daughter just keeps reiterating, like, you don't understand, like, I'm so used to just being surrounded by my friends all the time. Like, that's just so much part of the rhythm of your childhood. Like, you're being ferried in a carpool with other kids. You're in school with other kids. You're eating all of your meals with other people. You're doing your sports and your activities. And you're, there's this constant sense of that hubbub of community. And I think that really especially depending on kind of what path one pursues, that really drops away as we grow older. I'm not sure, I didn't really exactly answer your question, but I do think that an aspect of that I really remember from childhood is this sense of kind of the hubbub of other people and the constantness of that and what a relief it was sometimes to be able to create a world in which I could control it and I could be alone or I could only invite in the voices that I wanted to hear, which at that time was solely Morrissey's voice. I don't know. Do you feel as if that privacy becomes less necessary as an adult? I mean, I guess I also think that the difference is that you don't have as much of, or at least, and I guess that's something I wanted to talk about because one of these stories, I don't remember having so much of society and 
its woes and it, you know, everything about it and expectations kind of deeply implanted in my mind at that time. That actually you could go deeper into a kind of private world because you hadn't absorbed so much of the larger world internally yet. And that's something I, I definitely don't feel as much anymore. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. It's like <laughs> our inner landscapes are so populated <laughs> now, um, sometimes with company that we don't wish for. Um, <laughs> exactly. But I also do feel like that's a generational difference. Like I certainly feel as if I was much less aware of current events and societal upheaval when I was growing up than I feel like my daughter is. So I do also feel as if there's something generational about the degree to which childhood today does have a lot more of that background noise than I remember it having. Oh, yeah. And I think that's what you're writing about in the story likes, you know, in part, because it's a daughter who's, the parents are kind of trying to make sense of her by her social media. And she's really tapped into, I think like most teenagers, tapped into all these different channels and people, and it's so much more constant maybe than it was. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, it's interesting that the urge for privacy or building a private world is, particularly in that story, is done through a public medium. It's really sort of topsy-turvy in a way. Yeah, there is this contradiction, I feel like, with kids, on the one hand, really wanting to connect <laughs> with each other through a medium that seems to preclude any kind of privacy. But then, you know, one of the things that's been fascinating to me is how they kind of create these workarounds, you know, that you have like different Instagram identities, like you have your public facing Instagram, and then you have the Instagram that only your friends get to see. And then you have the Instagram that you let your grandparents, see. you know, so it's like right. these crafting these different spaces with an awareness of audience and with an awareness of what degree of privacy or public access you want to allow for. So that's so interesting to me that they have figured out ways to take these platforms and mold them to their own needs. And then, then also things like Spotify, Spotify playlists, how like who you invite to listen to your playlist or not, or which playlist you make public or not, how that too then becomes this sort of negotiation of what is outward facing versus what remains very much quietly yours. So it's so interesting to me how these technologies have in a sense forced them to make choices about what to share and what not to share and whom to share with and whom not to. So in some ways, I think they're so much more conscious of it and aware of it than I was at that age. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it seems to me like children have, you have to do that, right? That you one does that. There's a personality you show your family. There's a personality you show your relatives. There's a personality you show your friends. And you have to compartmentalize in that way until you realize one day that you're an adult and perhaps you don't have to do that anymore, but um, <laughs> you're lucky. But 
that this makes that work really explicit. I think you don't, you usually aren't thinking about it as explicitly as that. And this actually kind of, you know, lays it out in terms of actual work, (laughs) work that you're doing and building yourself. Yeah, exactly. It does. It's become almost codified now in a way that I just think was happening subconsciously when I was that age. I'm also fascinated by how the Instagram posts in that story are both, you know, sort of inviting interpretation and also resisting interpretation or, you know, that the dad is so hungry for some means of understanding his daughter in some way to access her inner world that I think in some cases he reads far more into the images that she posts than (laughs) she might necessarily have intended. So I'm fascinated by how parents of my generation, we do a lot of fretting, a lot of hand-wringing about our children and about how their brains are being shaped by this technology. And in some cases, I think if we can just remember like, oh, that feeling of being 12 and like, that dog is cute. Or like, mm-hmm. I like that rainbow sticker. You know, that sometimes it's just as simple as kind of an aesthetic urge and that there isn't necessarily some profound hermeneutical process going on. So I also hope to capture in the story that, yes, maybe some of her images are gesturing towards a kind of inner life and especially an inner life in turmoil, but that some of the images are simply just things I thought were pretty. (laughs) (laughs) And that, you know, one of the things that's so slippery about a medium like Instagram is how they're sort of all presented on the same plane. Mm. You know, there's no kind of hierarchy of meaning there. It's all presented with equal weight, which I think is one of the aspects of the platform that mystifies the father in that story. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7 FM, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Sarah Schwanyen Bynum about her new collection of stories, Likes. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Richard Seymour back on the line with us today. Richard is the author most recently of The Twittering Machine, and he's here to give us this week's book recommendation. So Richard, what book are you recommending? I think I want to recommend to you a book by Benjamin Taylor. It's about one of my favorite authors, Philip Roth, and it's called Here We Mm. Are, My Friendship with Philip Roth, which for people who are interested in writing and who want to, if you like, find the nemesis of the social industry's toxic triviality and relentless ahistoricity, I think you could do a lot worse than uh, read this book, which has, as much as anything else, reflections on death. We get, as the writer Elizabeth Knox points out, we get danger all the time. We're always constantly thinking about danger, and that pushes us into reactionary positions. But death is um, uh, another thing to think about, um, and it's something I sort of 
end the twittering machine with because if we think about death, we have to think about uh, our life. I just want to finish by um, talking about how the book opens. It opens with a quote from The Human Stain, and it goes like this. The stupendous decimation that is death sweeping us all away. Orchestra, audience, conductor, technicians, swallows, wrens, thinking of the numbers for Tanglewood alone just between now and the year 4000, then multiply that times everything. The ceaseless perishing, what an idea. What maniac conceived it? And yet, what a lovely day it is today. A gift of a day, a perfect day, lacking nothing. That is really beautiful. Are you a fan of Benjamin Taylor's work? Only in as much as I read his book about Philip Roth. And- about Philip Roth, okay. And, and uh, with regard to Roth, what is your favorite Roth book? Oh, it's, it varies, but because it's either American Pastoral right. or The Human Stain. And these are books that you know don't necessarily resonate with my politics, but that's precisely what I find useful about them. They obviously have a, a point of view of uh, American politics, which I, I might describe as a kind of liberal patriotism. Um, mm. More to the point, they grit against political generalization, and they delve so deeply into the specificities of consciousness, which is something that is very difficult to do when you're writing about politics. And, you know, in, in political writing, you suspend all complexity or as much of it as you can, and you suspend contradiction as, or as much of it as you can. In fictional writing, you get to do something else entirely, and Roth was an absolute master of inventing consciousness. And, you know, if, if I was any good at writing fiction, I'd be trying to do what he did. <laughs> <laughs> that is very high praise. Um, can you give us the title and the author one more time, please? The author is Benjamin Taylor. The title is Here We Are, My Friendship with Philip Roth. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Richard Seymour, author most recently of The Twittering Machine. Thanks, Richard. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Sarah Schwanian Bynum. About her new collection, Likes. I wanted to talk a little bit about parenting anxiety um, because that's a aspect of the, of the first story in this collection, which is that I believe at the Pasadena Waldorf schools, very fair. Not that not that it matters exactly, but I recognize I, I visited that fair and I recognize some of the details. But um, you know, this thing of wanting, and I guess that kind of goes back to my you know initial question of we all have an idea of what childhood should be. You know, I think, and especially as parents, that that becomes acute and it beca- can become worrisome. You know, because uh, it, it's it's as though it's a, it's we imagine it at this incredibly sacred space, and and we don't want it to be. Uh, sullied in any way with um like cheap toys or badly made things but we but more it's like we don't we don't want it to be sullied by the wrong choices or pain or confusion um, i think uh so i i guess in some sense you know the worry of a parent really has to do with what they think childhood should be i wonder if you could just talk about you know that story in particular and kind of parenting anxiety vis-a-vis what we're protecting, you know? My sense is we're protecting this idealized version of childhood. And I also think that 
there's this attempt to both recreate our own childhoods and somehow perfect them or somehow compensate for the ways in which our own parents didn't do it right. So I think that, you know, one of the enormous appeals to the mother character in that story um, is this idea that if only her parents had made different choices for her, she would be able to think more clearly. She would be less distracted. She would be uh, a, a more fulfilled adult. So, so there's this, this illusion that, that somehow we can fix the mistakes that, that we believe um, ended up forming us. Um, so I, I, I do think that it's a fantasy, though. I mean, I, I do think that that ideal childhood um, is always going to remain elusive, always going to remain out of grasp. And, and what I was interested in that story is exploring how the mother's fixation on trying to protect her child's happiness, trying to shore up her child's sense of self. You know, she's so, so um, fixated on these abstract ideals that she is in large part, like, not connected to the child who's right beside her. You know, it's the pursuit of this elusive ideal actually ends up um, preventing her from noticing what's happening in that moment um, as they are making their way through the fair. And that's something that I'm, I've just really been interested in is, is that sort of tension between wanting to control and create all of the um, most conducive circumstances for our kids, but also at the same time, not actually paying attention to them, how often those two, um, in a contradictory way, can, can go very much hand in hand. A lot of these stories are about girlhood. And I was wondering if there's, what about girlhood interests you in particular? Um, because I think we've been talking about childhood at large, or just in general, but um, so so many of these tackle being a little girl. Um, so yeah, if you could talk about that, what is it about girlhood that interests you? I think it stems from what I most love to read, which is that I've always loved to read books about girls navigating their way into adulthood. So Jane Eyre, Anne of Green Gables, an episode of Sparrows. You know, when I think about the books that um, were the most important to me, they all had these girls at their center, girls who often were slightly on the outside of things for, for, for different reasons. Um, that passage through girlhood just has always been endlessly fascinating to me and just always seems sort of rich with story and, and rich with dramatic 
possibility. And I also think there is a part of me that that is drawn to to thinking and writing about girlhood because I I often do uh, feel as if it's a it's a age and it's an experience that is more largely dismissed that <laughs> that that girls are you know you know despite all of the girl power memes and hashtags that that there is still a perception that girls are conformist that they are rule followers that um you know they sit still in class and um have neat handwriting and (laughs) um are not to be sort of taken very seriously as disruptive forces or as wild spirits and i i think um a part of me writes about girlhood as a way of writing against that narrative or, or as a way of challenging it. Yeah. Yeah. Some stories, and they're not all girls, some are women, but you also, you use race in these stories. I don't use it, but the characters are alluded to like very casually as, you know, Oh, I was Brown or a Brown boy, or it doesn't feel ever like, the stories are quite about race per se, but that kind of somehow being somewhat outside something, being belittled or judged, you know, lots of the same attributes that you might think of or that you mentioned in terms of girlhood could also be mentioned in characters that are not white in a book or in fiction. Can you talk about the way that you bring in race in that way in in your work? Well, I I wanted to write stories that look like the world that I live in, um, that look like my family, that look like my neighborhood. And in order to do that, <laughs> it meant placing black and brown and multiracial characters at the center of these stories. But I also wanted to go back to this to this idea of resistance i also was very aware that to write about black and brown and multiracial characters as protagonists meant that there are already these received narratives there's already so many sort of pitfalls and traps and quicksand <laughs> to uh, navigate because so much of the storytelling that I have grown up on has been very reductive uh, in terms of if writing about lives of characters, like the ones that I'm interested in writing about. And this was one of the ways in that, that I think that the fantastic was really helpful was because sometimes when I sort of felt as if I was stuck. Uh, Like, how do I write about this home burglary, for instance, without reinscribing all of these really vicious tropes that the fantastic sort of became a way to write around the pre-existing narratives? Like, it became a way to 
sort of shimmy (laughs) outside of some of those narrative ruts that I I really wanted to avoid. But also I, I, I wanted to remind the reader that like, oh, just because race isn't placed center stage, (laughs) first paragraph, even though race might not be foregrounded, um, doesn't mean that race isn't uh, shaping and informing every aspect of our lives, every aspect of these characters' lives. Um, so, so yes, absolutely, often their racial identity would be sort of mentioned casually or, or mentioned deep into a story. Uh, but I, 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 was, I was hoping to, to um, suggest the reality that, um, that race is something that is absolutely inextricably entwined and doesn't have to be um, sort of announced <laughs> um, in order for it to be an important presence in the story. D- does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it's often not, and it's often not announced when a character is white. So I also think, you know, that that's kind of a reordering that's necessary. Yeah, exactly. Like I joked with my, I did a conversation with my friend Danzi, and I and I joked that it was like a, a agenda of of deprogramming, <laughs> of you know, sort of just like reteaching the reader not to automatically assume that a character is white because their race hasn't been specified. Um, That I, you know, I hope that with sort of all these stories that, that the reader eventually learns that they have to come into the story um, without that assumption of, of whiteness uh, based on uh, the pattern that they've experienced so far um, and just sort of remaining open and remaining curious um, and remaining alert, but not uh, making any default assumptions. Maybe just as a, as a last question, I think one of the things that's interesting about the book and you were talking about the, fan, the fantastical element of it is currently I think we live particularly maybe right now, we live in a reality that sometimes feels fantastical and that also one has to remind myself as oneself is, you know, kind of all too real. Um, And I wonder how that has, perhaps it hasn't been affecting your work at all, but I I wonder how that has been affecting the way in which you think about fantasy, you think about the surreal, you think about dreams and their relationship to reality and how literature sort of makes sense of this very confusing time sorry is that really big (laughs) that's a big question can you solve things for us Sarah (laughs) I I just need answers so (laughs) to me I'd I'd appreciate it (laughs) um I am still I mean for 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 me as a writer I am still um paralyzed by the surreal turn of events <laughs> of this past year. I have not been able to yet make sense of them um, in, my, in my head or on the page. I am still trying re- and struggling to sort of wrap my head around um, our 
current reality. So I, I, I feel, I'm so sorry. I feel so like ill-equipped to answer that question no. just because I have, you know, been like kind of um, knocked over sideways and sort of rendered speechless um, by the past, is it, are we on nine months now? <laughs> um, so, and, you know, and I'm just, I'm, I amazed by the, the artists and by the writers who, who have been able to respond to this moment and make work about this moment. Um, some of my graduate students that I was teaching in the spring um, were writing about the pandemic um, and were allowing that to enter into their fiction. And, and, and at this point, we were only a couple of months in. And I, I was just um, so moved by their ability to take a step back and have something to say about it and and to find a way for it to enter into their work. I still have not figured that out for myself yet. I still feel so heartbroken and so uh, angry and so bewildered by what's happening that I, I haven't been able to wrap my arms around it or wrap my mind around it. But I, I do, I do find solace um, in 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 the writers and and the thinkers and the artists who have been able to, because I just, I have been just, yeah, I've been knocked over by it. Well, you're you're human like the rest of us. It turns out, um, <laughs> just have a just have a better way with language than we do. Um, thank you, Sarah, so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. This was such a treat for me. And thank you for, for the wonderful questions and for reading the, the stories uh, so, so deeply. So thank you so much for that. We've been speaking with Sarah Schwanyan Bynum, author of Likes. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.